Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came down to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are, these, are not these men who speak Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native tongues? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the fact that you have had the desire to reach the nations with the gospel long before we were even here. And thank you that through this process, we have come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would be comforted by the fact that your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that did this miracle almost 2,000 years ago, is the same Holy Spirit that is with us today. And we thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is going forth and the service of the church is going forth. God, I pray that this church on this corner, but your church throughout the world, would be a witness to that very world. It's in Christ's name that we do pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but I get really discouraged when I read the news. So much so that I've actually started avoiding reading the news. That's probably not a good thing. Uh, But I find that when I do read it or I do listen to it, I get so stressed out. Our election process, a little bit less than ideal. There's cultural strife in our country. It seems like it's just being torn from the inside out. When you think about it, the very people who give their lives are being accused of taking life. The very people who serve and protect are being accused. But but there's, there's groups of people that feel terribly unsafe. What do we do that? I find myself, I thought I knew what I thought, but as, as time goes on, I, I just don't understand what God's doing. I don't understand what's happening. Basic moral views have kind of gone right out the window. While I was there with my family this past weekend, we heard about a beheading that was happening in a church, during a church service. Not in some small country, but in a western country. There's bombings that are happening, not just in other countries, but in our own country. The numbers of slavery, not just uh, are the exact same, if not greater today than they've ever been, and yet we call ourselves civilized today in our modern society. Think about just this church in the past five years, what we've gone through. 
There's been two pastors of those left. I was one of them. <laughs> That's hard. We went through an embezzlement issue. We lost five elders in five years. I thought it was six. I started counting. So it actually might be six. But I mean, think about the difficulties. When you look around us, it looks so difficult. There's no way the church is going to succeed in a world like this. Everything is against us. But what's astounding is, in Acts chapter 2, things aren't that different. Think about this. Jesus publicly died in front of a lot of people. The Roman Empire is as strong as it's ever been. Whenever there was a tiny Jewish uprising, they would be not only completely smashed, but a couple years after this, 35 years after this, they would destroy Jerusalem completely. Destroyed the temple, absolutely demolished the city. And God has given the task of telling people that this person who died rose from the dead. Something that's never happened before, by the way. Except for Lazarus, but you know. And they're supposed to tell it to the whole world. And who does he choose to spread this message? Fishermen. A tax collector. Regular guys. Galileans. They don't have a prayer. Unless... The Holy Spirit is with them. And what we see today, we are assured that the Holy Spirit is with God's people because of the preaching of the Word and the service of the church. And now you say, wait a second, those are, I mean, they're pretty basic, they're pretty standard. Here's the thing about the gospel, and here's the thing about when God moves. It's usually not that complicated. You know, what is it that we are called to do? We are called to love God and love our neighbor. Yes, we can look into the depths of of Scripture and things like that. But when it comes to the task of the Christian and when it comes to what God has called the church, it's not all that complex. We're called to love. We're called to serve. We're called to obey. And in this case, for the church, we're called to preach. And we're called to serve. So remember the context, as we mentioned, Jesus is risen from the dead and He remained with them until He was taken up to heaven 40 days later. The disciples chose the 12th, the 12th apostle last week. Not actually last week, but that's what we discussed last week. Uh, and, and somebody who had been with Jesus the whole time. And, and, and God had told them, Jesus had told them, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. So literally, they are sitting in Jerusalem waiting. God has given them this massive task, and instead of giving them a list of things to do, first do this, then do that, He tells them to wait. And so they do. And they're together, waiting. And if you look at verse 1, I encourage you, please do have your Bibles out. When you look at verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together. In the Old Testament, Pentecost was also called the Feast of Weeks. So what I want you to do, we're going to be working today, open your Bible to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. This was a feast that the the Israelites had celebrated uh, Throughout history. Now, we've often heard of Passover. This is when the lamb was killed and they would paint over the doors and it symbolized when Christ would come. If you look at Leviticus chapter 23, it gives certain commands. And you can just look at your head titles and it sort of gives you a general idea of what's happening. If you look at, for example, 23 verse 3, there at the top it says the Sabbath. And it gave the regulations for what they were to do on the Sabbath or the day they came together to worship God. Then you look at the next one, it talks about Passover and what the rules were for Passover there in verse 4. This is going through the calendar of what they celebrate. If you think about us, what is it that we celebrate? Around, you know, December we celebrate Christmas time and then 
around April or May, we celebrate Easter. And there are certain things that we celebrate. We have a calendar. This was the Jewish calendar. If you look next, they have the Feast of First Fruits. And this is when they would wave, uh, this is when they would celebrate uh, the first fruits. But then you have the Feast of Weeks in verses 15 through 22. And this is what the disciples were celebrating. So this is the day. It's the Feast of Weeks. It's 50 days after the Passover. Remember, Jesus died on the Friday after Passover. And what does it say here? From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf, the wave offering, count seven full weeks. And then it describes what they are to do. This was one of the three times a year that people would travel to the temple. They would travel during Passover. The other time they would travel was during the Feast of Weeks. And the purpose of this celebration is to recognize the Lord as the provider of all crops and as the one who deserves the first fruits of all produce. This, we often talk, we give our tithe, you know, whether it's every, every, every two weeks or every uh, four weeks, depending on how our pay cycle goes. When you're a farmer, when do you get paid? Harvest time. One time a year. That's it. And during the Feast of Weeks, this was the time that they would bring their first fruits, the very first of what they had. That's a scary thing if you're a farmer. What if locusts come next week and demolish the rest of it? What if hail comes? What if marauders come? I mean, literally anything can happen. What if anything happens? But they are commanded to trust God by giving the first of what they've got. They're not counting on Social Security here. They're not counting on that retirement plan. They're not counting on life insurance. They're trusting God. Those other things aren't bad by any means. But where do we put our trust? And if you look at verse 22, not only are they given these regulations about how to celebrate, but there at the very end it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. So the the leftover sides. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. We see that people actually obeyed that. The book of Ruth is built around this one verse because somebody obeyed God. Now let me ask you, do you think people at this time we're obeying this, this idea of first fruits or to travel to the temple to obey. There are plenty of people that didn't, I'm sure. But there are also plenty of people that did. In 1 Kings chapter 4, sorry, that's actually, I wrote 1 Kings, it's 2 Kings. Uh, after, the time of, uh, after the time of Elijah that we just read, there's going to be a man. And this man is from the northern part of Israel, but Elijah is in the south. And he packs up just a few loaves of bread and about a quarter bag of grain. And he travels, what scholars have estimated to be about 10 days, to give about a half week's of groceries, and takes it all the way to the southern part, where Elijah is. Now Elijah is there with uh, many of the people that he's teaching, and and these other people see that this man brought all this grain, and they say, I mean, thank you, there's, there's, no one, there's nowhere for this man to take his offering. So he brings it to Elijah, the man of God. And, and the other men that are there with him, they say, thank you, but this isn't going to be enough to feed us. Does it sound familiar? This is never going to be enough to feed us. Elijah prays. And take a while and guess what happens. Not only is there enough to feed them, but there's some left over. You've heard a story like that before. There's this guy named Jesus. There were these about 5,000 people, and there was a little kid who had his bag lunch, right? 
there's echoes of, the, of what Jesus Christ would do in the Old Testament. But we see somebody who was faithful. And it was somebody who realized everything belongs to God, especially my first fruit. And that's what tithing is. Now, it's always awkward for a pastor to talk about tithing. It's always awkward. But this is the idea. We need to give back to God. Because everything belongs to Him. This isn't just a call for money. What about your time? Have you thought about what a tenth of your time is? I had a pastor say that one time, and I got really stressed out. What if we gave a tithe of our time to God? Of our efforts, of our energy. What if a tenth of our meals, we invited someone over and ate with them in our house? What if, I mean, the list could go on. And the idea is a tenth, that fraction isn't the important part. As Christians, you're not called to give a tithe. Sorry. We are called to give everything. The tithe is merely a reminder that it all belongs to God. There's a story about a man named Colgate who a tithe didn't end up being enough, and so he started giving more and more. I'm not here to tell you, give a tenth. I'm here to tell you, give everything to God. Trust in Him. And that's what we see this man doing. This Feast of Weeks, these were people who were coming together, who were faithful to God. Literally, they are recognizing everything belongs to God. And they're asking the question, what can I do without? When it comes to generosity, it's not what's the most that I can give, but we've started asking ourselves, what can I do without? When I was about 16 years old, uh, I read a book, and in the book, I don't remember anything else from the book, but I do remember there's this one section that said that if the same amount that is spent on chewing gum could feed world hunger. Blew my mind. Chewing gum versus world hunger. Now, if I don't buy a pack of chewing gum, that's not going to solve world hunger. But since then, if somebody offers me a piece of gum, I actually won't take it. I'll say thanks, but I'm okay. And every time that happens, it reminds me to pray for my brothers and sisters all over the world who don't know what their dinner is tonight. It's not changing the way my finances are. It doesn't, I didn't used to spend a whole lot on chewing gum. But it reminds me of needs around the world. What do we know is happening? And what we see here, the disciples were obeying the Old Testament law of God. This, that them being there on the Feast of Weeks wasn't just a coincidence. It wasn't just because Jesus had commanded them to be there. They were actually still celebrating the laws of the Old Testament. Why? Because as you read the Old Testament, it points you to the truths of the Gospels. It points you to the truth of the New Testament. And so they were there worshiping. And we're going to see, they're not in the city together. There were thousands of people there worshiping God. These were people who were faithful, who wanted to know who God is. But I want to first draw your attention, before we go on to those people, I want to draw your attention to verses 2 and verse 3 of Acts. So go ahead and flip over to Acts. I accidentally didn't leave. Go Flip over back over to Acts chapter 2. And if you notice, in verses 2 and 3, you see the imagery of wind and of fire. We read the book, we read in Elijah 19, the sound of the rushing wind. And if you think about Sinai, before God gives the commandments, there was a, a loud wind. In the Old Testament, the word for wind is the same word for spirit. If you, it, it, there was this, this echo of when the Holy Spirit would come and how the wind rem, reminded the people of, of God's presence. But also, it's wind with fire. 
the same day that God gave the, the, the commandments to His people, it says that there was a great fire on, the, on, on, in, uh, on the Mount Sinai. Uh, in Exodus 13, if you think about the pillar of fire that walked with the people, if you think about Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is called, it was a bush, but it wasn't just a bush, it was a burning bush. And Elijah, in this same passage that we read earlier, there you see the fire, just before that passage, the fire of God coming down that's with His people. God is described in Deuteronomy 4 as a consuming fire. And so throughout the Old Testament, this imagery is there. So when the disciples see the wind, they hear the wind, and they see the fire, they're automatically thinking, this is just like when God was with His people in the Old Testament. And here's the thing, if you look at that passage, for example, in Elijah, that didn't happen every day. That was so rare. And, and in Exodus, also, the fact that, that it says that Moses was able to God, talk to God as a friend talks to God face to face, that was just astounding. And yet, we get to do it every day. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is with us. This should blow your mind. We get to talk to the God of the universe anytime we want. We can boldly approach the throne of grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. And then we see this Holy Spirit in the New Testament. In, in verse 4, the Holy Spirit is, is this huge theme. Remember, Luke is part 1 and Acts is part 2. In the book of Luke, for example, John the Baptist has said the Holy Spirit was in, in him even when he was in the womb. And so when Jesus comes nearby, he starts doing flips. There's a song called Jumping Johnny uh, about John the Baptist, and I just can't get that out of my head. But there's this idea that even throughout the book of Luke, there's the Holy Spirit that's there, and it, and it follows through the song of Zechariah and through the rest of Luke. And here we see it at the beginning of Acts. And in Acts, the Spirit fills the church for service and to speak God's Word. It happens in Acts chapter 4. Happens in Acts chapter 13. As you, this is a theme that follows throughout. You know the Holy Spirit is there. When? When the word is being preached and when the church is serving. What do you think? The Old Testament promises of the coming Savior and the Old Testament promises of the Comforter are, are supposed to focus the ministry of the church towards service and God's word, of loving and teaching, of care and truth. And you know what encourages me? That's happening right here fact is happening right now but it happened two weeks ago when we did vacation bible school it happens every time we have a sunday service it's been happening for these past few months even when there hasn't been a steady pastor here there are faithful people in this church the building if you had asked any of us four years ago five years ago if the building would be going up we'd say absolutely not there's no way are you kidding me think about Two weeks ago, when those kids came up for children's sermon and they were all walking, walking out, I got really worried about whoever was teaching children's church upstairs. <laughs> My goodness. And I'm the one that's trying to help with, with those children's church lists, and I get stressed out, and oh, who are we going to do it, and is it going to be okay, and this, that, and the other thing. Think about it. What a blessing. We get to preach the gospel to kids, and they remember it. It's a sign that the Holy Spirit is with us. Preaching of the Word, the service of the church. If you look at verses 5 through 12, we see that the gospel is proclaimed through the Holy Spirit. Now think about the kind of people that heard the message 
in this passage. It describes, this, it describes Jews that come back. This, the idea here is these are diaspora Jews. All that means is that they were people spread out all over the Roman Empire that were coming back to Jerusalem to celebrate this. Now, I remind you, these are pious people, sort of like the guy that traveled those ten days to give his offering. We think, oh, what a good, what a good follower of God. I remind you, just because you're pious or you're good doesn't mean that you're saved. And so we see a group of people here who have come to Jerusalem to give of their first fruits, but they still don't even know the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are good people who need to hear that you are not saved by what you do. You are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. You are saved by who you know. And He is yours and you are His. Repentance is required. And these are people who put in a lot of effort But when they start hearing these languages and when they start hearing people talking in the other languages, it it describes how they have amazement and wonder. In verse 7, when we read here that they are utterly amazed, in in the Greek, it's actually two verbs there. It's sort of, they were amazed and they were wondered. Uh, And you can't really say it in English, so that's why they say they were utterly amazed. They were amazed, amazed. And and the idea is, is this is, they were just flabbergasted. Oh my, what is happening here? But what do they say? They ask two questions. The first question is, aren't these Galileans? I mean, I want you to think about last week. Sorry, not last week. Uh, It would have been uh, 50 days before that. So about seven weeks before. When when Peter was there and when he denies Christ, they recognize him. They only say, oh, you're the Galilean. You're with Jesus. This was supposed to be, it was actually kind of an insult. You're the the country bum from the north who... uh, is a fisherman, so you don't know much. You're a Galilean. That's the first question they ask. What's the second question? The second question they ask is, how these Galileans know their language? What's astounding here is that God is using the more familiar linguistic or language means to make sure that the message reaches his audience. You see, remember, these Galileans, they don't really, how is the Holy Spirit going to spread the gospel through the entire world? They've been given this task, and they're probably sitting there in the room thinking, what are we going to do? Then the Holy Spirit comes, and they start speaking in these other languages, and the gospel starts going even though they don't know the language. A miracle happens when the Holy Spirit comes. Isn't that awesome? Did you know? That today, about 1,300 languages have access to the New Testament, and more than 550 languages have complete translated Bibles. That's great news. But there's some bad news, too. There's about 7,000 languages in use today. About 180 million people do not have a Bible translation in their language that has even been begun. No one's even begun a Bible translation. You know how long a Bible translation takes? About 50 years. So what it means is somebody needs to dedicate their entire life so that one of those languages can have a Bible. You get to read it every day. 2,000 years later, they still don't have the Bible. About 2,300 languages across 130 countries have active translation happening right now. So there are people, 2,300 people are working, and it's this, usually it's teams for one language, are working to translate the Bible into one of those languages. And they have dedicated their entire life so that somebody can read the Bible in their own language. My roommate, 
uh, I actually can't say his name or the country where he's been if you talk because they record it. Um, but he is, throughout our entire college years, he would sleep on the floor because he was preparing for missions. And, and, and he's there now. He's been there for four years, and he's translated three books. And he's learning the language, and he's being with them. And in fact, I just read his, his, his newsletter a little while ago, and the guy who'd been helping him translate uh, wanted to get married, but the man said he wouldn't allow his daughter to marry somebody who's hanging out with the missionary, so he denounced his faith. And now my friend is alone again translating the Bible so people can have it in their own language. What's amazing is God's heart for other nations hearing the gospel didn't start this year. It didn't start in this century. From the beginning of the church, this has been the pulse, the heartbeat of God, that people from every language, from every tongue, would know the Word of God. And so here we see, it gives a list of these countries. It says Parthians and Medes and Elamites. And literally, what it, it's a movement. So it, it first describes the countries in the east. Then it talks about the countries in the north. Then it talks about the countries in the south. The reason it doesn't talk about the west is that's where the Mediterranean is. And then it talks about countries even beyond Rome, Crete, and Arabia. These were, these were kind of the far expanses of the Roman Empire. And what does it say there in verse 7? All were amazed and perplexed. They were flabbergasted. They were astounded that they were hearing their own language, but also what the people were saying. See, missions isn't a modern effort, but it started when the church started. To my encouragement to you, just when we think about this section, number one, be aware and pray. How do you spend your upset time is what I call it. We all get those things that just get us riled up. This is one of the things that gets me riled up. But when you think about what you get passionate about? What do you get excited about? What are those things? Is it the color of the carpet in the nursery? Oh, I wish it wasn't blue with swirlies. Or is it that people don't have the Word of God? What do you pray with your kids when you guys pray together at night? Do you pray just that God would bless you? Do you pray that people who've never heard the gospel would hear it? We talked about idolatry uh, and, and sort of those things, those boxes that we don't let God touch. What if your child is called to missions? Would you be okay with that? I've realized that what a sacrifice my in-laws are making with us going to the mission field in January. I'm taking their babies far, far away. Are you willing? But also I'd encourage you, serve your community. You see... You cannot serve God elsewhere if you're not serving Him right here. You can't go to Appalachia and start sharing the gospel there if you're not sharing with kids here. You can't, you can't uh, go to another country and, and start teaching about the gospel of Jesus Christ if you're not willing to do it in your own town. So the call here isn't to go just to the far reaches of the earth. The call is to teach the gospel where you are. If God calls you overseas, great. Let's talk. But if God has called you here, then share the gospel like you were sent here, because you were. You were placed here. So be aware of the issues around the world, but make an effort to share the gospel. But what's amazing is, even when the Holy Spirit comes, and even when these amazing miracles occur, what do you find in verse 13? In spite of this miracle, you have two groups. Group number one asks, what does this mean? What might this be are the two questions they ask. They're unsure. They don't know what to make of this. Group number two, ah, they're drunk. They've had too much wine. There are always critics and doubters. What's amazing in Acts chapter 17, verse 32, it's the same thing is said of Paul. Paul is sharing the gospel ardently, and people say, ah, 
He's had too much sweet wine. He's had too much to drink. There are always critics and doubters. Satan will use other people to discredit God's ministry. But let me ask you, did these people stop? No. The love and the teaching of God go forth anyways. Those who are serving may get discouraged, but remember, the Holy Spirit doesn't stop through discouragement. And I want you, I want you to picture this. There's different languages. that Peter is standing up, and, and, and these other people are talking, and there's different languages being spoke all around. It kind of feels like chaos. And then there's people who are heckling them and say, ah, they're just drunk, don't worry about it. And there's other people who are kind of curious. They're saying, no, 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 there's something to this. And what's amazing is in the next few verses, Peter stands up, and preaching. And you can almost see there's some people that are kind of dispersing and there's leaving, but there's other people that are curious. So when Peter stands up to talk, it's not like here where people were sitting there listening in, 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 in careful attention. No, no. These were, some were listening and some weren't. And what's amazing is the Holy Spirit starts changing hearts and changing lives. Instead, in fact, we're going to see next week thousands of people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by the end of this chapter. Fishermen. They don't know the language. Roman Empire spread all over. Holy Spirit found a way. Throughout the Bible, God promises the Holy Spirit amidst troubling times. And throughout the Bible, there are examples of people who gave Jesus their all amidst awful failures, mistakes, difficult time periods. Here's what I'd encourage you with. The Holy Spirit is moving in this world, in this town, and in this church. There's sort of two options that we see here. Two reactions when people see this. One, is a dispersing critic. There's no way the church can make it in a time like this. I can't do it. Or, are you coming with us? That's the purpose of the title of this sermon. There's two kind of responses. And I encourage you, first of all, be encouraged. In the midst of these troubling times, the Holy Spirit is moving in this church and throughout the world. Bible translation is occurring. People are coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In our own town, it's happening. It happens every week. It happens every day. When you serve, when you give the gospel to the person next door, it's amazing. Continue. And for those of us who look at it and we say, I don't know if this is something I want to get involved in. It looks like a lot of time and it looks like a lot of messy people. It is. We are a sinful people. But serving God is the most exhilarating experience I have ever had in my entire life. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to your church throughout the years. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is moving in this country. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is moving in this world. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is moving in this town. God, if we look around us, we will be discouraged. But if we look to you and we look to your work, we will realize that somehow amidst all of these difficulties, you are still in control. And I pray, number one, that you would encourage us. But number two, I pray that you would help the preaching of the word and the service of the church to go forth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.